to Senator McMurrow. What is up, you guys? This feels like I'm going to start a terrible stand-up comedy set. I'm like, oh my god. Um, yikes! I am glad I did not go into stand-up comedy. Uh, First of all, Manny, thank you for hosting us. Thank you for everybody for coming. Uh, and I have to do this because I don't get an opportunity to do it anywhere else. I wanna shout out my brother, Kyle McMorrow, who is a San Franciscan and who also speaking of how people got here, when I ran for office for the first time in 2018, he quit his job at an ad agency in New York and moved into our guest bedroom, which my husband did not like, but he produced all of the videos that looked so professional that told a story that helped me get elected for the first time in 2018. And I wanna give a shout out to Gary, who is also here, uh, who worked for me at a grocery store many years ago, who was my brother's roommate. <laughs> Gary! I'm never gonna get a chance to do that anywhere else, so I had to do it. So how many of you heard of me or Michigan or the Michigan State Senate, maybe for the first time about four weeks ago? Kyle, you have heard of the Michigan State Senate for much longer than that. This was a moment that it has been such a weird four weeks now month since this speech went crazy viral, where I don't think you're ever going to get some messaging where James Carville and the Pod Save America guys like all agree that this is kind of the right messaging for people and people have been calling me to ask what was your strategy for the Democratic Party and what are you thinking and how do we, you know, fix President Biden's numbers and how do we do all these things? And I'm like, listen, I am a state senator in Michigan. So my speech did not happen in a vacuum. I got elected for the first time in 2018 and I have not ever thought about having a career in politics. I used to be a car designer. There's a Hot Wheels car that has my name on it. Like that was my career. And I've lived all over the country. I've lived in five states, including here in California, uh, before moving to Michigan, starting my own consultancy. But I woke up the day after the 2016 election and I just wanted to vomit constantly. I looked outside and thought the world should be on fire. And it was jarring to me that it wasn't like the fact that it was a sunny, normal day and everything looked normal when I knew that it wasn't normal. So I did what any normal person does. And I Googled how to run for office and I downloaded a PDF. And then I figured I've got to do something else. So I found the women's March in Detroit and I went to the women's March in Detroit and I am not a lifelong protester. So I didn't know what to do. So I was calling friends of mine who are lifelong protesters. And they told me, you know, write your phone number on your arm in Sharpie. And you got to bring some milk with you for when you get maced. And here's what to do if you get arrested. And I was kind of terrified, but I went anyway. And what I found was so hopeful. It was multiple generations of women grandmothers, mothers, babies, grandbabies, everybody got together. And by the end of the afternoon, we were singing and women are women, we get shit done. So we started exchanging phone numbers and email addresses and we figured out how can we all work together to do something? So 
I started hosting like a weird modern version of a Tupperware party and had a couple of friends together at my house to call our state legislators and write postcards. And slowly kind of the, the activism built and eventually I found an organization called Emerge America, which recruits and, drain, and trains democratic women to run for office. They had a chapter in Michigan. Yes, shout out to Emerge. Uh, and I learned how to run for office. I spent six months with women from all over the state of Michigan, from all backgrounds. There was a woman in our cohort who was 76 years old, who said she has seen the race riots in Detroit. She has seen all of this conflict, but she can't stand by and let this happen anymore. And I was going through this organization with her and we learned how to run. So I filed in August of 2017 to challenge a Republican incumbent whose dad was in Congress for 16 years. And even among the Democratic establishment, they said, that's cute. You're going to get destroyed, but don't worry. You will build your name recognition and you can run for city commission next time. Um, but that's not how we do things. So we worked for a year and a half and we built up an organization of more than 500 volunteers over the course of the campaign of all backgrounds and types. We had kids who would come to our office and hand draw postcards to send to voters. Um, I learned that you should never piss off teachers because an army of retired teachers who fail at retirement came out for me. So my, one of the, the best people on my team, she still works on my campaign now. She was a teacher for 41 years and she would go door to door with us and people recognized her and they were like, oh my God, I love Mrs. Rosenman and I'm also terrified of her. So whatever she says, like if she wants me to vote for you, I'm gonna vote for you. And we built up and I, I was so moved by what this campaign turned into that it wasn't just me, it was all of us and it stood for something. So fast forward to, I've now been in this job for three and a half going on four years. I have introduced 40 bills, not a single one has ever gotten a hearing because I am a Democrat who flipped a Republican seat because I have a target on my back because that has not been allowed. So a few weeks ago, when a fundraising email went out from one of my colleagues fundraising for herself, and it accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing kindergartners and wanting eight-year-olds to believe that they were responsible for slavery, my heart sank. I am the mother of a one-year-old. This was a mom accusing another mom of molesting children. And I just sat with how bad that felt for a day and I realized however bad I felt for a day is how horrible it feels every single day. If you are the parent of a trans kid, if you are a member of the black community who marched in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and saw no action happen, not only no action happen, but this fear mongering around critical race theory and diversity, equity, inclusion, it, it feels terrible every day if you are on the receiving end of these attacks. And I was trying to figure out why did she come after me? And I realized it was kind of the warning shot, right? It's that if you are standing up with them, you're not one of us, you're one of them. So there's a reason I started writing things down and I changed all of it and came to what it came to, which is I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom, very intentionally to say that it's on us. It is on people who look like me. It is on people who are not targeted by these attacks 
to say that just because we're okay doesn't mean this is okay. And it's very intentional, you know, I've been really pushing the idea that hate won't win because right now it's winning. So I wanna paint a picture, especially for those who are not Michiganders of what is happening in Michigan right now. So my speech didn't happen in a vacuum. We saw Michigan being number one, the first COVID protest happened at our state capitol. On April 30th of 2020, we had an armed protest at our state capitol where people thronged into the capitol and they were banging on the doors of the state house where Darren Camilleri, my colleague here, um, currently serves. And unlike January 6th, they didn't break in, they were welcomed in. So our current Republican majority leader in the Senate, Mike Shirky, saw all of these men with AR-15s and Boogaloo shirts and full tactical gear and invited them into the Senate, said, come on in. So you might have seen a photo of four heavily armed gunmen up in the gallery. And what you don't see in that photo is me directly below them. They were standing over us and threatening us and taunting us and... To put this into perspective, the same day that we all learned about the plot to kidnap our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, we were all sitting on the floor of the Senate. We watched it on our laptops. And this same majority leader, Mike Shirky, stood up and he made a point to say on the Senate floor that these people were thugs, that what they were doing was not welcome. But then he turned around and went to the front of our Capitol, to our Capitol steps, and rallied with the same people who organized this plot. And this plot didn't just include kidnapping the governor, it also included burning down the Capitol, taking us as elected officials hostage, carrying out public executions. And what we saw in that first protest included nooses and swastikas and a doll, a naked Barbie doll with brown hair that was supposed to be Gretchen Whitmer hanging on a noose. And by the way, that guy is running against Darren for state Senate right now. And to paint the picture of what this means for the rest of the country, Michigan is an incredibly consequential swing state. However Michigan goes, the country is going to go. And for the past year, they have been systematically replacing members of boards of canvassers, the people who certify elections in all 83 counties in the state. They've been replacing those people with people who will willingly overturn election results if they do not like them. So I hate to be a super big downer when we're coming to visit you guys, but if we don't put an end to what they are doing in Michigan, it is not hyperbole to say that this may be the very last free and fair election we ever have. Because we saw them try it. We saw them on election night in 2020 send armies of people to Detroit to the TCF center, to bang on windows, to threaten poll workers, to take votes away from black Michiganders. And they'll do it again for everybody. So at the same time that the speech that I gave a few weeks ago went crazy viral and people from all over the country watched it and we've gotten letters and calls and emails from all over the country from Republicans and Democrats and Christians and non-Christians saying how much it meant to them. And that's wonderful. But in the same week, the state Republicans had their state nominating convention where they nominated their choices for attorney general and secretary of state. 
the attorney general candidate, Matt DiPerno, may lose his law license by the time the election comes around. And he's built a name for himself on touting the big lie, on all of these lies about the 2020 election and the conspiracy theories, and he's been fundraising off of it, and he's gone to Mar-a-Lago to host a fundraiser there, and he will overturn the election. And then the Secretary of State candidate, Christina Caramo, has said that the LGBTQ community goes against God's design, that yoga is a satanic ritual, and is also very willing to overturn the election results. So something that we have to be keenly aware of in Michigan and also the rest of the country, if you wanna take a pulse of how the country is going, check out Michigan, because we are a state that covers the entire spectrum. We are everything all at once. We are a state that elects Gretchen Whitmer, Dana Nessel, an openly gay attorney general who fought for marriage equality in the Supreme Court, Jocelyn Benson, who quite literally wrote the book on why secretaries of state are important to the country, and we have more homegrown militia activity than any other state in the country. It is all of it at once. And it is on us to fight back against this and prove that it won't win. And we have an incredible opportunity to do that in Michigan. So in Michigan, the state Senate has been under Republican control since 1984. Yes, that is longer than Darren or I have been alive. My husband is cringing in the back. He was alive. <laughs> but for the first time, Michigan voters in 2018, the same year that I got elected, created, voted to create an independent citizens redistricting commission to finally take the power away from the legislature for regular people to draw our districts. And they did. And Michigan is currently held up as the gold standard for redistricting. So to put this into perspective, in 2014, Democrats got about 51% of votes statewide. Republicans had 72% of Senate seats. This is not a representative democracy. This year, independent analysis shows that we have a 1919 split in a standard election year. But if we get anywhere close to how Gretchen Whitmer performed in 2018, we can have 21, 22 seats out of 38. We'll have a clear majority and we can send a message to the rest of the country that this bullshit is not a winning strategy, that you will not take people's votes away, that you will not demonize the LGBTQ community and the black community, and that we will fight back with a new model that is led by us in the Michigan Senate that is about standing up for what you believe in, calling hate hate, calling lies lies, and organizing, organizing and going door to door, talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, doing the work on the ground to build those relationships. And I wanna introduce you to somebody who is doing that and has been doing that and was one of the only Democrats, the only Democrat to pick up a seat in 2016, the year that Donald Trump got elected. My friend, State Representative Darren Camilleri, who is, again, running for the most consequential state Senate seat in the country. Thank you. Thank you, Mallory. Give it up for Mallory. Uh, I wanna say thank you to Manny for hosting us here. Uh, I also have, a, a, my cousin's a Manny, so it was very cool to have that connection there. Um, so my name is Darren Camilleri. You likely have never heard of me, and that's okay. I'm going to introduce myself today. So I am a, the son of an immigrant from Malta, which is a small little country in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Some people might know Malta, yeah. Uh, my mom's side of the family is Mexican-American, and her family was here when Texas was Mexico. So my family has some really, really deep roots here on one side, but also this new American story on the other. Uh, I'm also the son and grandson of union auto workers. 
We build American autos right in Michigan. My district is home of the American auto industry. We build the Mustang and the Bronco, and we make all of the different engines for every single Jeep that you see on the road. Those are my folks. That's my dad. My dad makes the F-150. And for me and my family, the American dream was realized by stories like this. Folks coming to the United States, finding opportunity, working in factories, and building a life. Literally, my parents met on the factory line. Like, that's how Michigan I am, okay? <laughs> and for me, being able to be in my community, which is about 20 minutes south of Detroit, it's where I was born and raised, where I grew up. Uh, down river is what we call it. We were literally down the river from Detroit. Uh, we, we just do things differently. We live a different way of life where we make things, we build things, we're proud of who we are. And no matter where you came from, that's the type of story that you like to tell. I'm the first in my family with a college degree. And so it was very, very important for me to go off to school. When I came back, I decided to teach. I uh, became a teacher in Southwest Detroit, that same neighborhood where my family built their story. On my first day of work though, I very quickly realized the discrepancies that you see between what my students had opportunity to and what I had growing up. I was 22. I was appointed department chair my first day, which is crazy to me. Uh, I had no textbooks and I was given no curriculum either. And my principal just said, eh, go have fun. Like you're gonna enjoy this and just like make the best of it. Being the son of an immigrant, of course I did make the best of it because that's what we do, right? Immigrants are the ones that are the backbone of this country. And so we did what we thought was best. I taught my students the history of Detroit. We talked about our experiences, their experiences, had a Socratic seminar, literally did what we're doing right now, talking about big ideas, challenging it, using readings to back it up. I gave them a college level seminar. Every single one of my students got into college that year. It was the first time that we saw that from the school that I was teaching at. It wasn't just me, we had a whole team of teachers who worked behind the scenes diligently to make sure that every student had access to that opportunity. But it was so quickly after that that I realized that this was not enough, that I had to maybe step up and maybe create that change outside the four walls of my classroom. So I knew that in my district back at home, where I lived, where I grew up, there was this opportunity to run for the state legislature. I was 24. Everybody said, ah, go ahead, have fun. You're going to run. You're not going to win. Like they told Mallory, right? They always tell us, you're not going to win. Have fun. Go talk to people. Like, you're going to be amazing. So I was amazing. And that's what we did. We went out and uh, I cannot tell you how many critics we had this entire campaign. It was pretty unbelievable. Uh, we went out, we knocked on doors. We did what everybody says that you have to do. Meet people, meet, meet them where they're at, talk about their issues, hear their concerns. And so that's exactly what I did every day after school, every single day. I knocked on 17,000 doors myself, personally. We built out a team of young people. My entire campaign was under the age of 25. I had high school kids knocking on doors. They'd never done this before. But we built out the organization and we talked to 60,000 people at their doorsteps, person by person, vote by vote. The reason that's so like monumental and so different for my region of the state is we'd never seen a political organization like that in my community, never, right? They always ran people who had been elected to local office for a long time. They supposedly had a name. That's just not how you win. You win by talking to people. We knew that that election was gonna be tough because we saw some of the uh, very difficult pro-Trump movement happening on the ground specifically with like these older union, former Democrats or current Democrats, right? They would complain about things. They talk about 
NAFTA and some of these other challenges that Trump really tapped into. So we saw it firsthand for a long time. So we knew that this was going to be politically problematic and that we had to work as hard as we could. So that's what we did time and time again. The Republican Party was so scared that they spent a million dollars trying to beat me. This 24-year-old kid who everybody said, have fun. We were obviously very threatening to them. So we did that work and we worked our, our asses off. And at the end of the day, when all the votes were tallied, we won by 323 votes out of 47,000 that were cast. At the same time, Trump won my district by 12 percentage points. Almost unheard of. I was the only Democrat to flip a seat that year. Thousands of people voted for that monster that is Donald Trump and me at the same time. I really couldn't fully understand it at first. It was kind of confusing to me. Uh, but I knew that the conversations that we were having with people who had Trump signs or people who were more traditionally conservative, we connected on stuff that meant something to them, whether it was our public schools or local infrastructure projects or protecting our Great Lakes and the Detroit River. I found something in common with them and we just kept showing up and kept showing up and kept bothering them and kept listening and kept having conversations in their garage or literally, literally having a beer on their front porch with them for 10 minutes on the way that we were campaigning or getting invited in to have coffee with a little old lady who wanted to talk about whatever it is that she wanted to talk about. Those are the types of conversations that made a major difference in our election. So we learned something. So just like Mallory, the Republicans didn't let me do anything for a while. Uh, I've been in office now. This is my sixth year in office. This is the first bill that I've ever had signed into law was two weeks ago, which is pretty amazing. But I did it. I'm a lawmaker. We did it. Uh, but we need to be able to make more of those laws going forward. And that's why we're here today. The Michigan State Senate is literally the best chance that Democrats have to pick up a majority in the state Senate and any state legislature across the country. It is literally our chamber. I am now in a Biden plus four seat, which is good, but it's still difficult, right? We've still gotta be in a position to work our asses off just like we have in the past in order to win. The landscape is pretty clear. I am the first Democratic pickup if we win. So I'd be seat number 17. I need two more. I need two more friends. We've got seven state Senate seats in Michigan that we are currently targeting. If we win three of those seven, the Dems get to a tie. Our Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist will break that tie and we'll be in a position to enact an agenda that we all care about. The other thing I wanna talk about though very quickly is that all of this is important, right? All of the core issues that we care about especially in Michigan, talking about Roe versus Wade being overturned. In Michigan, we would have the strictest abortion ban in the country, which dates back to 1931. It is a felony on the books. We have people like Matthew DiPerno that if he wins, becomes attorney general. He is promising to prosecute women and put them in jail based on that statute. We are in a position where Michigan is, uh, we could be leading on climate, talking about climate change and, and the future of our country. We can't do that because we have a Republican party so beholden to the fossil fuel industry, as well as large corporate donors. We haven't been able to make any traction on that. All of that is critical. When you layer in the fact that Michigan is the most important state when it comes to presidential politics and our democracy, we are talking about the future of all of us. It's not just Michigan, it is literally all of us. So after 2020, I won, in a really good election 2018, I won by a pretty good margin. 2020, the Republicans came after me again. They spent a ton of money on me at the last minute. 
We ended up winning by five points, which is sweet. Trump won by eight at the same time. I outperformed the top of the Democratic ticket by 13 points in 2020. Literally, uh, the next day that that happened, they started calling into question the results of the election. Not just in my race, but in the presidential. You all saw this across the country, right? Uh, I was on the committee that had those hearings with the oversight committee. So you may not have heard my name, but you may have seen me uh, pushing back against Rudy Giuliani uh, in that committee with Melissa Carone and all the people that got parodied on SNL. That's, that was me, I was right there, it was pretty insane. Uh, I asked Rudy Giuliani a question that he got so scared that he shit himself, you remember this? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because what he was using was taxpayer dollars and resources to push a lie, the big lie that we know is just one of the most destabilizing components of where we are in our democracy. If we flip the Michigan State Senate, none of that will matter. If we do not, we will see a repeat of what happened in 2020. We'll see it again in 2024 with a state legislature that will be willing to overturn the results of the election. We were so close to seeing that in Michigan this last time. It was all of us pushing back against all of the lies with all of the facts, and we won this time. But if we don't win the state Senate, it's going to be all of us who are the ones uh, that are going to be sorry because we will not be in a position where democracy is upheld. So that's what's at stake here. That's what we're talking about. I hope that you can help us along this journey as we help flip the state Senate, as well as a lot of state legislatures across the country. I, wanna, I don't want to like disparage anybody else, but we are the best bet when it comes to your time and your investment. Folks like Sister District are here tonight. They're the ones that have been helping us flip state legislatures all over the country for the last couple of cycles. They've been supporting me and my campaign. So if you're looking to get involved, please connect with Sister District. We've got a, a few chapters around the area who are gonna be supporting not only my campaign, but a couple of the other critical campaigns across the country. If you're looking to get involved with your contribution, right up here is the QR code on both of the screens. Please feel free to give whatever it is that you can because it goes to both me and to Mallory as we are hoping to not only flip the Senate, but be in a position to enact real change. Um, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for caring. Thank you for being part of this larger movement. We are literally changing the face of democracy every single day, and it's starting right here in this room. So thank you all. I really appreciate it. I think we're doing some questions maybe. Yes, go ahead. Homemade signs. We'll take it. Whatever you can do. Okay, seriously, especially on a state legislature race, we are down ballot. We are not normally on TV. I know that's like a weird thing that I am on now and people have been asking me like did you expect your speech to get this feedback? I'm like, "No, I'm a state legislator in Michigan. Are you kidding? We talk to our constituents. We never have any idea." Any way you can get involved. The best thing you can do, see those folks in the back from Sister District, sign up with them. I cannot say enough amazing things about Sister District. If you do not know what Sister District is or how they operate, they are an organization that pairs safe blue areas in a group. You adopt a race in a swing state like Michigan. I would not be here. You would never have heard of me 
if it weren't for Sister District. They helped us raise money. They helped us figure out our campaign strategy. They sent 15 people to Michigan for GOTV in 2018 to help knock doors and frankly taught us how to do it because there were organizers who had already been in Virginia and my entire campaign team was new. We were trying to figure it out for the first time. So they were amazing. So please sign up with them, figure out how to get involved. And if you want a lovely vacation in October, come to Michigan. You can get some cider, you can see some fall colors and you can help save democracy. So yes, I would advise doing that. Yes, I will give you the lessons from middle America. I'm here for it. Uh, so I represent a district that is mostly suburban, white working class, mostly. But there's one area of my district that's sort of like this rural exurban community called Huron Township. There literally are farms there. So I do represent farming areas. And I was, this is 2020, I was out knocking on doors, having conversations with, with folks. And there was this gentleman on the front porch who was, felt like he was waiting for me almost, like he had seen me and he was like, staring me down a little bit. And I was like, oh, great. Like, this is going to be a fun conversation. Um, but he opened up with like, hey, I know who you are. You're that Camilleri kid. And I said, yeah, I am. How's it going, man? Yeah. But we ended up having a decent conversation about a couple of things. After he told me that he disagreed with almost everything that I, ever, I, I believe in, he said, I actually like a few of the things that you've done. It's okay, cool. He cared that I focused on this local infrastructure problem in my community. Trains block traffic for hours on end. My community is hit by it forever. Apparently it might be a thing here in California too, but we are trying to do something about it. We're building some underpasses. He cares about public schools. And he cared that I actually go after big corporations and hold them accountable and try to make them hold their promises. Uh, and he kept grilling me one after another on, on various items. At the end of it, he said, oh, I'm just giving you a hard time. I already voted for you. <laughs> but he found the three things that he liked about me disagreed on like the 70% of other things that I've been fighting for and advocating for. But it was three things that he found in common. Two of them were hyper-local. And one of them was just sort of a general principle of like, hey, regular people need to get their break too. Big corporations shouldn't be running the show. And so I think that if you find those areas of common ground, specifically with the local interest in mind, then we can win, right? Like most voters are normal, rational people. They really are. You just gotta go talk to them find what they care about. And you will find that polling and the media don't fully tell the complete story of who American voters really are. You have folks who are very, very fringe and they believe in conspiracy theories and lies and those people do exist. Those people are not the Trump Camilleri people. The Trump Camilleri people is like the mom who's just historically been a Republican for forever. And even though she doesn't really like Trump, she's like, well, I'm gonna vote Republicans. I've always voted Republican. However, I like this Camilleri kid because he showed up to my door we had a good conversation about public schools, and he seems to care a lot about the community. So I think that we have the chance to do it, but if we just sit in our silos and don't engage in a conversation, we are never going to find that common ground. I also just want to add one thing that Darren does so well that you cannot underestimate the importance of just connecting with people regularly. So I got out on doors in a lot of Trump country, you know, part of my current district had never elected a Democrat. So I just show up and you talk to people. Um, but I also committed when I got elected 
to being really present in my district because I ran against somebody who um, also owned a restaurant and an insurance agency and kind of treated this job like a part-time job, was known for not showing up. So I host a weekly live stream that's on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can watch it. Anybody can ask questions. We go out on doors even when we're not campaigning. So we're out there in the summer in my legislative office just to check in on people. And I've had the same feedback where people say a few things. They say, I don't agree with you on everything, but I trust you. I trust that you're going to tell it to me straight and that you show up. Like people tell me they like tuning into my live stream because it's how they know what's going on in the state. Like some people leave it on in the background, like it's a radio show, which is kind of cool. And then there's just not talking down to people. So in part of my district, when I ran for the first time, we had no data on if there were Democrats there at all. So I would show up on a doorstep and there's one doorstep I showed up on. I spent 45 minutes at this couple's house, a couple in there, probably seventies or eighties. And this woman answered the door and she said, who are you? And I said, I'm Mallory, I'm running to be your state Senator. And she said, I've never heard of you. And I said, well, yeah, that's why I'm here. And like, I have a flyer and I've got information I'm here to talk to you about it. And she said, no, 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 no. I watch the news every day and I've never seen anything about you. And then she clarified, I watch Fox News every day and I've seen John James and Bill Schuette and all of these other Republicans in Michigan. She said, I've never heard of you. I was like, oh my God, okay. But then we started talking and she started rattling off, here are the issues that are important to her. In 2018, a lot of people in Michigan, in my district, I'm sure in Darren's district, were very concerned about the caravan at the border. Michigan borders Canada. So I didn't know if people were concerned about Canadians coming over the Detroit River, but it did not make sense. But then she started saying that she's got a lot of guns and Democrats are coming to take your guns. But then eventually I sat and I listened and she said, my daughter is a teacher and there are too many kids in her classroom. Her job is too hard. She doesn't have enough money in her school to do her job. She has to buy all of her kids' school supplies. And I was able to say to her, there's a lot that we don't agree on, but that is something I want to do something about and something that the guy I'm running against is doing damage to your daughter's ability to do her job. And by the end of the 45 minute conversation, this woman said, one of the things that I love is that you didn't talk down to us. You didn't come here with a flyer that said Democrat on it in big letters and you didn't throw it at us and you listened and you didn't judge us. And then she said, I'm voting for you and I will take a yard sign, which was very confusing because then it was like John James, Bill Schuette, who was running against Gretchen Whitmer and me, which does not make sense. But a lot of that is people just want you to listen and for them to feel heard and like you connect on something. It doesn't have to be everything, but it has to be something. And that's just a matter of showing up. How long do we have on this conversation? Okay. So when I ran for office for the first time, I remember knocking on a door and talking to a woman who I filed to run for office a month after Ray and I got married. And then I was like, guess what I'm doing? I'm running for office. <laughs> Love you. Um, 
And I remember standing on this woman's door and, you know, I introduced myself and she started asking me, she's like, how many kids do you have? And I said, none. She was like, well, how many are you planning on having? And I said, I don't know. And she's like, when are you planning on having kids? This was the question. And she eventually said to me, I can't vote for somebody who's not going to be able to do this job full time. This is not a job for a mom. I need somebody in this job who can do it full time. And again, I was running against somebody who had two other businesses and was known for not doing the job. And it was, you know, it hasn't been easy being in this job. In my first year in office, I filed an official sexual harassment complaint against one of my colleagues to stand up for a reporter who he had also sexually harassed because there was a pattern of behavior and I knew I could back her up. And this was somebody who on the day after we got elected, I got to the Capitol, we had our orientation and we got to the sexual harassment portion and there was a break and I went over to introduce myself and he asked who I was. And I said, I'm Mallory. And he put his arm around me onto my upper rear. And I said who I ran against and he looked me up and down and said, I can see why you won. And I didn't say anything about it at the time because I was like, holy shit, this is my first day on the job. I worked so hard to get here and I held on to it until he did the same thing to a 22 year old reporter. And it's not easy. It's not easy to find your voice, but what I have found for as uncomfortable as I've been to stand up that the feedback, it just shows how important it is because there are so many women and girls who have had the same experience. When I filed that sexual harassment report, I remember a few weeks after that all blew up, women in the Capitol, my staffers, my staff is all women, which is just because there are so few of us here that every time I post a job, it's all women who apply to work with me. And there's a list of lobbyists you don't meet with, bars you don't go to, people who will stick their hands up your skirt and people who just said how much it meant that somebody in a position of power did something about it. So my advice is it's hard. It's hard, but we need more of us in these positions because that's the only way we change it is that we have to normalize the experience. We have to normalize what it looks like to be a woman in office. When I had our baby, I took a maternity leave. We don't actually have a policy for maternity leave for legislators. So I took one knowing it was going to be a political hit. And inevitably, at the end of the year, there was an article by the Mackinac Center, a very conservative libertarian policy group saying, I missed more votes than anybody else because I had a kid. But that's the only way it changes is more of us get in here. I'm incredibly proud um, of the fact that all of my staffers are women. I hope some of them run for office one day. I like mentoring groups of women and girls, because that's the way it changes. It's just us getting in here and taking up space and changing what it looks like and acts like and being loud sometimes and getting pushback. Do you want to start with this one? Yeah. Uh, so the militia activity in Michigan is not new. It's been happening for a very long time. I don't know if I have a clear cut answer as to why it's been like that in Michigan, but there are just a lot of people in Michigan who I think get into their silos and also fall into conspiracy theories 
and lies and have been for a long time. Right? We say this a lot. What happens in the country starts in Michigan. And we saw that with them trying to storm the Michigan Capitol. It was literally the dry run for the US Capitol. They practiced it in Michigan. So we have this long history of that type of activity occurring. Um, I think that we're in a position where we need to reelect Dana Nessel to continue going after some of these criminals because that's what they are. They're criminals and they need to be held accountable to the, the laws that they are breaking. They try to kidnap the governor of Michigan, right? And the laws of our country are so difficult to navigate in a courtroom that they couldn't come to a conclusion on two of the, the people who were allegedly kidnapping or trying to kidnap the governor. It was so partisan and so political that they couldn't come to a conclusion. So I think that we're in a position where we have to continue this side of our elected leadership, get to, to get people at the top of the ticket, as well as in the state legislature who believe in what is right and just and enacting policies that can create that change. Uh, a lot of that will have to happen though at the national level specifically, right? The Department of Justice will have to continue going after uh, these people who are white nationalists and domestic terrorists and going into those communities that are harboring these folks and finding ways to, to break them up. Um, I'm not an expert on that type of activity, but that is what I think where we need to continue going. If we do not see an attorney general in Michigan reelected, if we do not see Biden reelected in a couple of years, uh, I believe that we'll have a, another president on the Republican side of the aisle who will continue to foment that type of activity, which is only gonna make it worse. Yeah, I think that that last point is a really important one, because right now, the mainstream Republican Party in Michigan, and I think nationally as well, is more than comfortable of kind of winking and nodding to conspiracy theorists and hate groups because it's electorally popular at the moment. And the only way we stop that is by stopping them from winning. So there's the political aspect of it. Um, but there's also the, the softer aspect of it. So if you haven't read a book, there's a book called Politics is for Power. I highly recommend everybody read it. And there's an anecdote in the beginning of it that haunts me to this day, which is that part of the way that KKK gains new members is by finding people who are struggling with opioid addiction and reaching out and providing services and help and counseling and if you're the only person who somebody has been able to connect to in one of the darkest times of your life, and then later you find out it happens to be the KKK, you're a new KKK member. So I think we've seen this, you know, when we think about the Oxford High School shooting, the shooting in Uvalde, where there is a trend of kids, particularly young men, who are isolated, who are ostracized, who don't have access to counselors in schools, who start to build these fantasies that the only way to take out your aggression or frustration is by killing people, is how we see people get radicalized. So there's a lot of that too, which is policy-based, which is how do we provide spaces for people so that we catch people before they get radicalized because it doesn't happen right away. You know, these aren't people who are born white nationalists or white supremacists. You're susceptible. You don't have access to services. You go down the rabbit hole and then something terrible happens. Sure.
Okay. I'll start. Uh, the biggest challenge right now is definitely the chip shortage uh, across the country. Uh, I literally can just drive around my community and just see cars that are parked waiting to be sold or waiting to be delivered to people all over the country because we don't, don't make the chips here. And we never thought that we needed to make the chips here. And now we, we do. And so I think investing in that American manufacturing around that specific piece will go a long way. When it comes to battery technology, as well as EVs, uh, Michigan needs to continue to lead the way in the American auto industry. We are literally fighting for the, the continuance of that by trying to create new battery plants, and new battery technology, and have it be built right in Michigan. We have literally so much land and opportunity to do that right in our state, but we are competing with the South. And the South is an anti-union. They've got a lot of uh, influence in, in tax breaks that they like to give that we just can't afford to give. And so they've been winning a few of those opportunities. So that is certainly our biggest challenge is figuring out that policy component. However, place, companies like Ford and GM are investing in Michigan, which is how do you continue to keep that going? They're building a brand new battery research facility in my Senate district, Ford is, the Ford Ion Park. And so I think that there is that commitment but we've got to move quickly because at the same time, I have is 10, I think, plants that are based on combustion engines. And so how do you make sure that you transition those jobs so that we're not seeing the economic suffering at the same time? And then I would add to that building out the infrastructure because you have a, if you have a vehicle that you cannot charge on the place that you want to go, that is problematic. So it's sort of this catch-22 of which do we build first right now? We have finally, I think the vehicles that are no longer early adopter vehicles that are the vehicles that people wanna buy. So you've got the Mach-E, which is a very cool Mustang-esque crossover. You've got the Lightning pickup truck. So you've got a pickup truck that is electric powered that you can use as a backup generator to charge your house in case there's a power outage. Um, the Cadillac Lyric, which is super cool. I was charging next to one uh, last week. I drive a Chevy Bolt currently. Um, and the vehicles are hitting the market. So we need the infrastructure there. And then especially for Michigan, this is a talent attraction issue because there's manufacturing. And I don't think that we as a state should be competing with states that are non-union or companies that are non-union because at the same time, we wanna make sure that people are being paid a living wage, that they are good jobs that their kids wanna come into. Not that we're cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting um, and leading to unsafe work environments, but a great example is what Ford is trying to do in Detroit, in Corktown, uh, revitalizing the old train station to bring engineers, industrial designers, software developers. You know, Michigan can and should be the next Silicon Valley. No offense to everybody here. Um, you can buy a house in Michigan. Please come out again in the fall to come canvas. You can look at houses. It's going to be a whole tour. Pure Michigan. Come out. Um, but I, I chose Michigan after living in four other states. It is my chosen home. It's incredible. It has more to offer than any other place that I've lived in. And I feel like it's allowed me to be the best version of myself. And that is what I think we need to do the best job of in Michigan is market ourselves, bring people to the state for opportunity. And that means, especially in the auto industry, it's the entire spectrum. Yes, we can make it. We do that better than anybody else. We've got to design it, engineer it, invent it the whole way down.